that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples did. He left Judea, departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria, so he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Joseph's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, asked a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Let's pray. Father, we lift up this time in your word this morning. Lord, we thank you that in the midst of a world gone crazy, a world with, filled with chaos and confusion, because of your Holy Spirit and your divinely inspired, God-breathed Holy Scriptures, Lord, we can have absolute clarity. And we can know that we know that we know that we are destined to spend eternity with you in paradise. Thus, Father, we know we need not fear any of the things that are going on right now. In fact, we're excited because we know we're so close to seeing our Lord and Savior Jesus again or for the first time in the flesh. Lord, bless this time in your word now, we pray in Jesus' name. Before we get into this text, I wanted to just cover a couple things that are, that are appropriate to cover as we're just, you know, starting to get rolling in this Gospel of John one of the things that there, there are seven key signs in this book that are considered signs pointing to the fact that Jesus is indeed divine. He is God incarnate, God in human form. We've already looked at the first sign, and that was turning water into wine in John 2, 1 through 12. The second sign we will get to in the next couple of weeks. And that's the healing of the nobleman's son, John 4, 46 through 54. The next one is John chapter 5, 1 through 11, healing the man at the pool of Bethesda. John 6, 1 through 15, feeding of the 5,000. John 6, 16 through 21, when Jesus walks on water. The only other person we know of that kind of did that was Peter, but he... He didn't last long. He started to sink, remember? And then John chapter 9, 1 through 12, he heals a man born blind. And then finally, John 11, the resurrection of Lazarus. So these are looked upon by most Bible scholars, theologians, as seven key signs in the Gospel of John pointing to the deity of Christ. Now, there's also, this is very cool as well, there are in the Gospel of John seven I am statements. And we know that when God identified himself to Moses in the book of Exodus, as he speaks to Moses from the burning bush, Moses says, well, if I go do this, God, what you're calling me to do, I go back to Egypt and I tell Pharaoh to let my people go and, the, and my people, the Jews, are going to want to know who sent you. Who gave you the authority to come back here and to be our deliverer? God says, tell them, I am sent you. 
I am, not I was or I will be, the great I am, the eternal one. And there are seven times where Jesus uses this phrase very purposefully. Verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse 35 of John, I am the bread of life. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. John 10, 7, I am the door. Uh, chapter 10, verses 11 and 14, I am the good shepherd. Chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, we all know that one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then John 15, 1, I am the true vine. And he talks in that chapter, uh, John 15, about how we're the branches and we, we, we draw our life from the vine being connected to Jesus. So seven signs of Christ's divinity, the miracles, and then the seven I am statements. Good things to know about this Gospel of John moving forward. We haven't gotten to any of the I am's yet. The first one is in chapter 6. All right, verse 1. Therefore, when Jesus, or when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, and then it goes on, verse 2, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, we read back in John 3, 26, they, the Jews, came to John, the Baptist, and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. So we, we learned uh, last week how they were trying to uh, stir up division, uh, disputes between John and his disciples and the disciples of Jesus and Jesus himself, trying to make it look as though there was a competition going on when in fact they were working together, complementing one another's ministries. And John specifically said, he must increase, I must decrease. But the, the Jewish elders and leaders were trying to stir up trouble any way they could. And so Jesus finds out about this when the Lord knew the Pharisees had heard this. Um, and here's a little um, uh, a quote from uh, a website on um, baptism. This is really good. Uh, it's, it's from the regular Baptist ministries. And they're big on baptism. That's why they're called Baptists. It says, the focus of water baptism during Jesus' time differed from ours today. It was like the baptism of John the Baptist. That is, it was an acknowledgement of the coming kingdom of receiving and of receiving Christ. Yet there were aspects that pointed to New Testament church baptism. Jesus likely did not baptize for at least a couple of reasons. That's why I wanted to, to read this to you, because like, like me, you might have been asking yourself, why is it that Jesus himself did not baptize. First, by not doing so, he presented baptism as being apart from him. We know Jesus didn't need to be baptized. He did it to fulfill all righteousness. He asked John the Baptist to baptize him so he could set an example for us. He himself did not need it. First, by not doing so, he presented baptism as being apart from him, enough so that when the New Testament church was born and throughout the church age, it would be carried out without his being there bodily. Interestingly, Christ served only once what would come to be known as the Lord's Supper, and that was to initiate it at the Jewish Passover so that the New Testament church would observe it in remembrance of the death of the perfect Lamb of God, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 24. 
and then also chapter 5, verse 7. Second, by the Savior's not baptizing people, baptizing, people were less likely to put salvation into the meaning of water baptism. And we've talked about this many times. We don't get baptized to get saved. We get baptized because we are saved. So the point they're making here is that by Jesus not being baptized himself, it would, it would be less likely that people would look at that as being essential for salvation. The thief on the cross wasn't baptized, was he? What did Jesus tell him? Today you will be with me in paradise. I'm not saying baptism isn't important, but it's not essential for salvation. Okay, so they say, second, by the Savior's not baptizing, people were less likely to put salvation into the meaning of water baptism, as many people have done down through time, including today, and have been misled as to their eternal sins. In other words, thinking that just by being baptized, you're automatically saved. Misled as to their eternal status. To be saved, one must exercise faith alone and Christ alone, not rely upon some outward act. In John 4, 1, it is very plain by studying the two verbs uh, made first. Uh, oh, excuse me. The two verbs that one action took place before the other. The verb made indicates, made disciples in other words, indicates that disciples who already is a believer in Christ, I keep jumping over here, sorry, indicates that disciples were made first and then baptized. And I've made that statement before, you know, um, we become believers by grace through faith. We're born again. Christians are born, if you will. It's a, the new birth. We've studied that recently. But disciples are made. Jesus was making disciples by teaching them, by training them. If any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. When you're, when you're born again, you're a new creature in Christ Jesus, you're a babe in Christ, but then you need to be made into a disciple. Discipleship, discipline, training. The verb made indicates that disciples were made first and then baptized, or baptism followed. Not the other way around. Only one who is already a, is a believer in Christ can be a candidate for water baptism. Water baptism, baptism has never saved anyone. Those who believe that teaching, that teaching, are seriously misled and will go to hell. That's pretty straightforward. <laughs> Unless they personally believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Water baptism is a testimony that the baptism of the Holy Spirit took place in a life. In other words, it shows what has already happened in the life of a believer, the new birth. Third, but third by not baptizing, Christ demonstrated that baptism is not the chief end of the Christian experience. This passage and the policy of Christ not only refute the idea of baptismal regeneration. Baptismal regeneration is a doctrine, which is not biblical in my opinion, that teaches we are born again, we are generated through water baptism. But they also refute those who do not grow spiritually after salvation, regardless of the fact that they've been water baptized. Very good point. They refute those whose Christian testimony has nothing to offer beyond their being in the baptistry. Some churches have baptistries. We don't have one where they, up behind the platform where they go down and get baptized. They refute those whose Christian testimony has nothing to offer beyond their being in the baptistry at some point. Water baptism is very important as an act of obedience and testimony, 
But that event needs to be just the beginning of the spiritual life God intends for every believer. So that was a really good, I believe, a really good uh, explanation of baptism and also why Jesus himself did not personally baptize anyone. So verse 3, he, Jesus, left Judea, departed again to Galilee, obviously his disciples going with him. Things were heating up in Judea. Pharisees are trying to stir up trouble between Jesus and his disciples, John and his disciples. And so, uh, heating up with the Jewish elders there, Jesus went north to Galilee again, away from the discriminating, disparaging eye of the Pharisees, scribes, and chief priests. It wasn't time yet for him to hand himself over to them. We know that. This is in the first year of his ministry. And so, even though he is all-powerful, he avoided confrontations until the time was right for him to yield himself over to them. So they head back up to Galilee. It says, but he needed to go through Samaria. Samaria is sandwiched in between Judea in the south and Galilee in the north. Now there was a long way around, and many Jews would take that long way around to avoid being exposed to the Samaritans. They were considered unclean. Um, but Jesus chose to take the shortest route, and he had a very specific reason for doing that. David Guzik, one of the really great Calvary Chapel pastors, teachers, he, um, he says, because the Samaritans had a historical connection to the people of Israel, their faith was a combination of commands and rituals from the law of Moses put together with various superstitions. You see, um, when the, uh, the ten northern tribes were conquered uh, by the uh, Amorites, they, they intermarried with them to try and water down their, their heritage as Jews. And the Samaritans were these people who had been intermingled with the, uh, with the Amorites. And that's what Russia did with Ukraine. That's what different conquering countries will do as one of the ways that they will take control of that, that country is they will mingle their people with the local population and that's why it, uh, it became common in Ukraine for people to speak Russian. Ukrainian is a slightly different language, but most people in Ukraine speak Russian because they were infiltrated by the Russians and uh, forced to, to speak Russian and to intermarry with Russians, and they planted Russians in Ukraine to just try to make it part of Russia. And that's a common practice that's been going on for thousands of years. So that's what happened with these Samaritans. They were Jews that had intermingled with the Amorites, um, and now they were um, considered unclean by the Jews. Most of the Jews in Jesus' time despised the Samaritans, disliking them even more than Gentiles, because they were religiously speaking half-breeds who had an eclectic, mongrel faith. The Samaritans built their own temple to Yahweh on Mount Gerizim, but the Jews burned it around 128 B.C. This obviously made relations between the Jews and the Samaritans even worse. So, their route from Jerusalem to Galilee lay through the region beyond the Jordan. That would have been the long way around across the Jordan River. This was considerably longer, but it avoided contact with the Samaritans and the Jews. Uh, those who were not so strict went through Samaria. So it says here, we read here that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. 
The need wasn't because of travel arrangements or practical necessities, but because there were people there who needed to hear him, specifically the woman at the well. And that's what happens next. Verse 5, he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And now some people think that this name, Sychar, which means drunken, by the way, was originally kind of a, a contemptuous name uh, given to the, the town of Shechem by the Jews because it had been inhabited by these Samaritans. And so the city of Sychar actually is the same as ancient Shechem. There was a guy named Shechem too, remember? Who fell in love with Jacob's daughter, Dinah. And um, that was a whole uh, crazy situation there where um, he, he, he took advantage of her, but he wanted to marry her. And so uh, Jacob made a deal with him that if Shechem, his father, and all the men of the city would get circumcised, they weren't, they weren't circumcised, they weren't Jews. Uh, that then he could marry Dinah. But what they did was, Jacob's sons, who wanted revenge, waited till the men had been circumcised. And for a male, circumcision is not so easy. For little kids, they don't even know what's going on. So they're all in pain. They're trying to recover from their circumcision. Jacob's sons go in and murder them all. Some of the history of Shechem. But Shechem is a very interesting place because this is where Abraham first came when he arrived into Canaan from Babylonia. Genesis 12, 6. This is where God appeared to Abram in Canaan and renewed the promise of giving the land to him and his descendants. Genesis 12, 7. This is where Abram built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord. Genesis 12, 8. This is where Jacob came safely when he returned with his wives and children from his sojourn with Laban, which was about 20 years. And then he came back to the land at this place of Shechem, or Sychar. This is where Jacob bought a piece of land from a Canaanite named Hamor for a hundred pieces of silver. Genesis 33, 19. This is where Jacob built an altar to the Lord and called it El Eloha Yisrael. Genesis 33, 20. And this established the connection between Jacob and what became known as Jacob's well there in Sychar. We read that that was uh, the location where Jesus was at there, Jacob's well. Sychar, or Shechem, was also the place where Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, was raped. I mentioned that already. The sons of Jacob massacred the sons of the men of the city in retaliation, Genesis 34. This was the plot of ground that Jacob gave his son Joseph. Land Jacob had conquered from the Amorites with his sword and how in an unrecorded battle. And bow, sword and bow in an unrecorded battle. Genesis 48, 22. This is where the bones of Joseph were eventually buried when they were carried up from Egypt, Joshua 24, 32. This is where Joshua made a covenant with Israel, renewing their commitment to the God of Israel and proclaiming, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, Joshua 24. So a very significant historical site, but at this point it's within the area known as Samaria, so it's kind of off limits to the Jews by their own choosing. And now here Jesus is there, Jacob's well was there, verse 6. Jesus, therefore, being weary from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So here he is. Jesus is there at a place of tremendous historical and spiritual significance. He's weary from his journey, sits down by the well. So even though Jesus is fully God in his humanity, 
he could get hot and tired and thirsty just like everybody else. The sixth hour, high noon, arguably the hottest part of the day. And then a woman of Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Again, we already have talked about the fact that the Samaritans were considered unclean. Just like Gentiles, really. I mean, to a Jew, anybody who's not a pure Jew is unclean. But the Samaritans were almost worse because of what we talked about. But now, take into account, not only is this person approaching Jesus, a Samaritan, she's a woman. And men did not interact with women whom they considered to be inferior. Let's just be honest. And it was considered very inappropriate for a man to interact with a woman who was not his wife. So Jesus said to her, give me a drink. He's thirsty, but this is a divine setup. Jesus is setting the stage to bring this woman to a saving faith in himself. His disciples had gone into the city to buy food. This is no distractions. It's just a one-on-one -on -one encounter. The disciples, no doubt, would have objected to the whole scenario. Remember how upset they got when people were bringing their children to Jesus to bless them? Get those little brats out of here. That's my paraphrase, of course, but that's basically what they were saying. Don't bother the master with these little kids. He's busy. And he said, hey, guys, don't forbid them to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of God. If the disciples had been there, they would have probably strongly protested this entire encounter, perhaps really have hindered it. So it's just Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This is very weird. This is very strange. What's going on here? She's not offended, but she is shocked that um, Jesus would speak to her, let alone ask her for a drink. Now, I don't know how many of you remember Howard Hughes and how he became really just extremely obsessive, compulsive about germs and wouldn't touch anything and always had to have a, a glove or a cloth or something when he'd open a door. I mean, just took it to tremendous extremes. And I, if you've known people like this that have this OCD, well, that's kind of, you know, what it was like for the Jews with regard to the Samaritans. And yet he asked her for a drink from a cup that she had touched. As we know, that wasn't a problem for Jesus. He loved the whole world, right? God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. He had no problem dealing with lepers. The un they were unclean too, even though they were Jewish. Nobody would go near a leper. They didn't want to catch the disease. No problem for Jesus. You know, the enemy may try to convince you that you're unclean, you're untouchable. God would never touch you. But he will. And he, he has for many here today, right? And all of our uncleanness, all of our sins, God has willingly, lovingly touched us through Jesus Christ. Maybe other people haven't. Maybe they won't. Maybe they've rejected us for one reason or another. But God will never reject you. Jesus said, all those who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. But this lady's in a little bit of shock right now. And then Jesus answered and said to her, 
If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you knew the gift of God. And again, it's not that she doesn't know the gift of God because she's a Samaritan. Obviously, many of the Jewish people that Jesus was interacting with didn't know or understand the gift of God either. Well, obviously what Jesus is speaking about here is salvation by grace through faith to all who will believe. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith. Isn't it sad how many people believe the only way to be saved is by your own good works? There are a lot of churches that teach that, or at the very least imply it, right? They give you the very strong impression that your salvation is based upon your performance. If that's the case, we're all lost. You know that, right? Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. All of our good works are like filthy rags in God's sight. But this verse makes it crystal clear. By grace. What is grace? It's God's unmerited favor. That means we don't deserve it. We've talked about that so many times. People talking about what we deserve and what we don't deserve. And therefore we don't deserve to be raptured before the tribulation. None of it has anything to do with what we deserve. We don't deserve to be saved. We deserve to spend eternity in hell. But by the grace of God, by His unmerited favor... We can be saved, and he will save us. All of those who call upon the Lord will be saved. Amen. By grace you've been saved through faith, and not, not of yourselves. Here it is, guys. Nothing about our salvation can have anything to do with us. It's all to do with him. The faith that you had to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, it didn't come from in here. It came from up there. God imparted that faith to you. That's why I tell you all the time, pray for your unsaved loved ones, family members, friends, co-workers, that God will give them the gift of faith because it is a gift from God and the gift of repentance because until you're willing to admit you're a sinner, confess your sins before God and make a conscious decision to repent, to turn from that life of sin and to follow Christ. Salvation is by grace through faith, but you have a choice to make. Right. If you want to receive that free gift, you've got to confess and you've got to repent. By grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Yes, salvation is a free gift, but specifically what Paul is saying here. The faith to trust him for salvation is a gift from God. Not of works, not of any good works that you might do, lest anyone should boast. In other words, not one person who's been born again by the Spirit of God, who's been saved and set free from sin, and who has received the gift of eternal life, no one can brag about that because we had nothing to do with it. It's all him. It's all him. John 6, 37 all that the Father gives to me, gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will in no wise cast out. And then we have John 14, 6. We already quoted that today. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And then John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Not just some of the world, not just some of the people, not just certain ethnic groups, 
Not, you know the old Sunday school song, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. John 10, 6. Oh, this is interesting. I had a conversation with Pastor Bob Claycamp coming down from the men's retreat. We were talking about how the, some of the wackos are using this verse to say that, uh, you know, to legitimize the idea that there are aliens out there. John 10, 10, 16. In fact, I believe the Catholic Church, we've talked about they have the telescope on the mountain in Tucson. The acronym is Lucifer. That's the nickname for this telescope, Lucifer. I don't remember what all the initials stand for, but it's called the Lucifer Telescope, and they're looking out into space trying to find alien life, the Catholic Church. And they're saying, when they get here, we're going to baptize them. We get first dibs. We don't want the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Protestants to get them. We're going to baptize the aliens. I know it sounds silly, but it's true. And they're also saying, boy, if those aliens do show up, that could change our whole theology. It could change everything we believe about God and the Bible. I mean, you guys know the aliens are demons, right? Do we know that? Are we all on the same page here? They're real. They're just not people from other planets. They're demonic entities, fallen angels. But this verse, listen to this. The Mormons use this. Every cult group like, tries to twist it and take it out of context. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. So some people are saying these are the aliens, the other sheep. <laughs> And they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. You know what Jesus is saying? That there are other sheep besides the Jews. There are Gentile sheep. There are Jewish sheep. You guys, now some of you may have some Jewish blood in you, but for the most part, those of us here, we are those other sheep. The Apostle Paul, though he was a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee, trained under the rabbi Gamaliel, he renounced all that when Christ encountered him on the road to Damascus and God called Paul, perhaps the most Jewish of all the apostles, to be the, the apostle to the Gentiles, the other sheep, okay? The other sheep are not aliens and they're not all the other weird things that people have tried to make it out to be. But it is a confirmation as Jesus is encountering this woman at the well this Samaritan woman that no self-respecting Jew would dare to interact with. He's there talking to her, and he's about to lead her to salvation. He said, if you knew who it is who says to you, give me a drink, she may not know yet, but she's about to find out. You would have asked him, Jesus is priming the pump, pardon the well analogy here, He's priming the pump. He's beginning to tap into her spiritual thirst. You see what he's doing here? He is piquing her interest. If you knew who you were talking to and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you'd be asking me for a drink of living water. Not H2O, which only provides temporary relief from physical thirst. 
Remember how I told you last week that everyone, every, uh, everything Jesus says and does is ultimately spiritual in nature. Again, he's taking this earthly situation. He's hot. He's thirsty. This woman comes to the well. He asks her for a drink. But he's about to flip the script and turn it into something spiritual with regards to living water. John 7, 37 through 39. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Obviously spiritual, not physical. For this he spoke concerning the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. As we come to Christ and we're born again, he fills us with his Spirit, quenching our spiritual thirst as we commune with him and partake regularly of his Holy Word, as we interact with him in prayer. That's what causes that river of living water to flow forth in our hearts. I love this scripture. We used to sing a song in the old days at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. Pastor Chuck would get up, just big, deep, booming voice, and just start singing a cappella, and everybody would join in. I love this scripture, Isaiah 55, 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. This is a prophecy about Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of this verse in Isaiah. The free gift of salvation, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money. And spiritually speaking, outside of Christ, we are bankrupt. We're dead broke. In fact, we're in debt up to our eyeballs. The wages of sin is death. Jesus is the fulfillment of this scripture in Isaiah. The free gift of salvation. The free gift of the Holy Spirit. And the invitation goes out to everyone. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Got more to go with this story with the woman at the well. Let's stand. Let's uh, bow our heads before the Lord, and um, if you have a prayer request, please raise your hand. Okay. Father, you see all those hands. You love your children. You love to hear from us. Father, we've talked about how sometimes you answer our thoughts, but we know that you really love to hear from us, to have communication with us. And Lord, we can never complain about unanswered prayer if we don't pray, if we don't ask. Lord, you told us to ask, to seek, to knock. So that's what we're doing this morning. Lord, we're starting with anyone that might have a health issue, a health problem. Lord, it could be something very small. It could be something very large. Lord, it's all the same to you. You're the great physician. You're the master of the universe. You're our creator. So, Lord, we lift up to you any health issues 
represented here today by someone in this room or by someone that they are standing in the gap for you. Lord, we thank you that not only can we come before you for prayer for our own issues, we can stand in the gap for others. We can intercede on their behalf. So Lord, no matter who the, the prayer request is for this morning, whether, Lord, it's for a respiratory infection or cancer, some injury, a sports injury, an automobile accident, Lord, there's a lot of different ways that our bodies can get banged up. We lift them all up to you now. We pray for healing. Lord, I'm thinking of Ryan Mayfield and his knee. Pray for healing there, Lord. And Lord, you know of all the other issues here this morning that people are struggling with. Lord, um, joints, tendons, ligaments, muscles, strains, whatever it is, we ask for your healing power to be unleashed upon your people, Father, for your glory. Again, we don't come to you asking for healing because we deserve it. We know we don't. But because of your love, your grace, your mercy. So we call upon you, Father, for healing, physical healing. We call upon you for mental and emotional healing from those who are struggling with anxiety and depression and all the other emotional issues that we struggle with in this life. Lord, we pray for your comfort and your peace to be poured out upon those who are troubled in their hearts and in their minds. Lord, you said... Uh, let not your heart be troubled. And you said that you would give us peace, not as the world gives. Father, that worldly peace is temporary. It doesn't last. It's superficial. But your peace runs deep and wide. We pray for your peace to be poured out upon those who are in emotional, mental distress. Lord, again, for your glory, we will give you all the praise and the honor and the glory for lifting us up out of our physical, mental, emotional infirmities. Lord, we pray for those are struggling with marriages, friendships. Lord, we know the thief comes but to steal, to kill, to destroy. We ask for healing in those marriages and friendships, relationships that have been, been struggling or even broken, Lord. We know that what is impossible for man is possible with you. You can heal the broken marriage. You can heal the broken friendship. We pray for restoration and reconciliation. Help us to be instruments of your reconciliation, your forgiveness. Lord, we pray for those struggling with economic problems. Lord, you are our provider. Help us to always remember that. And Lord, help us to be thankful for what we do have. We ask you to give us wisdom. Help us to be good stewards over those resources. But Lord, where we're lacking, where we're falling short, we ask you to come in like a flood and just uh, make up the difference. And we will give you the praise and the glory and the honor for that as well. Thank you for your word. Thank you for a great time together today as the body of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.